Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the segment where we feature what we think are one of the best healthcare venture investors globally. I'm super excited to be here with Robert. Robert is the partner from Seven Wire Ventures. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's great. Uh, one of the reasons why we're having this interview is we looked at well over 150 venture investors specifically focused on investing in healthcare. And uh, Seven Wire Ventures really stood out to us. Not only your experience, Robert, you've been doing healthcare venture investing for well over two decades, but on top of that, you have a really unique program, portfolio development, and we're gonna get into that a little bit later, uh, but you also have a unique investment thesis that I wanna get into. Before we get into all those questions, I wanna start off, uh, can you share with us actually the background of Seven Wire Ventures? Because there's a, there's a story behind the name itself, so I, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so I can't take credit for it. I give credit to my two partners who came up with it, but uh, Seven Wire is based on the first transatlantic communication cable, which ran under the ocean, under the Atlantic. And as you would expect, as we see with startup companies, um, there were many attempts to get this right. It failed, they had to redo it. it you know, there were many iterations, there were a couple of pivots in technology. But when it finally worked, it opened up a whole new channel of communication and commerce and connectivity. And so when we think about the type of work we do at SevenWire, it lines up with we're connecting with people in the industry, we're connecting with entrepreneurs, we're communicating our message and our mission-driven uh, thesis to the industry, um, and we're, you know, we're trying to drive change. Really cool. Well, you know, for, to, to help the audience a little bit, let's start off with just who is Seven Wire Ventures? You know, what is the fund focus? What is the total asset management? Like, what, who, who is Seven Wire Ventures? We'll get into questions after. Yeah, sure. Sure. So Seven Wire was started um, by my two partners, Glenn Tolman and Lee Shapiro, about uh, eight or ten years ago, really initially as a family office. And then about a half a dozen years ago, um, we decided to go out and raise external capital based on sort of market demand, um, but really with the plans to accelerate some of the investing activity we'd already been doing. Uh, so right now we have about 150 million under, under management, um, primarily backed by um, strategic investors, health insurance companies and payers and some large family offices, um, but, uh, and all focused on early stage series A investing. Um, and I don't know if you, when you want me to get into my thesis, but I'm happy to tell you a little bit more about sort of our view of the world, right, wrong, or indifferent. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's a little unique in the industry, but uh, it helps set our true north of how we spend our time and, and how we want to have impact. Well, I think that that leads exactly into my next question, which is you make it very clear uh, your investment thesis, which is focusing on informed, connected health consumer if I'm not mistaken. That's and right. I'm, I'm curious, why is this the baseline for your thesis? Where, where did this come from? Uh, I think it's evolved over the years, but healthcare is one of those strange markets where um, almost everybody is involved in it. Almost all of us spend a lot of money on it. And yet we are a subject and not a participant. It's a very strange concept of the idea of us imagine that happening in any other consumer market, it seems like a strange concept. And yet today there's more information available for us to pick uh, a car to buy or even a microwave than there might be to pick a doctor or a hospital or other type of provider. Uh, and it, our perspective is just we've been ignored too long. And that if we're really going to drive improvements in quality outcomes and reductions in costs, we've got us to be able to change consumer behavior. We've got to get people to focus um, on better self-management, making smarter choices about how they spend their health dollars, how they um, make decisions about their own personal health and their loved one's health. But it's pretty hard to ask for those types of changes when we have none of the information that we need to make those decisions. Uh, and so really it was born out of just sort of a growing frustration that an increasing amount of financial burden is placed on our shoulders as consumers. And yet we don't really have the tools, technology, information we need to actually act like consumers. And historically, the system hasn't treated us as consumers. Now, I think um, 
I, I wouldn't say we are prescient in our view, but I think we're starting to feel that the market is coming to where we've seen things going for a while. Um, changing consumer behavior is really hard um, and having it be lasting is even harder. But if we can't grow personal responsibility and get people to move from sick care to well care, it's going to be really challenging for us to, to address some of the major systemic problems in healthcare. Interesting. And, and when you talk about this, this concept of informed, connected health consumer, it's really you're focused on trying to touch every aspect of how to put the patient back in control. Is that, is that generally what, uh, what the, 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 your thesis kind of revolves around? I think it does. I think one of the places where we're, I would say, maybe more realistic um, than perhaps some of our peers is that as deep industry veterans, you know, we've run a dozen businesses as a team, which are three companies public, four if you include Livongo. You know, we have a lot of the scars um, developed over the years from trying to change uh, the health ecosystem, whether it be at behavior at the uh, provider level, the payer level, the employer level, the pharma level. Um, and our general perspective, at least today, is that we still need to partner with the ecosystem. That's where the capital is, that's where the lives are. And we've got to work through these B2B to C models working with those um, incumbents um, for now. You know, change comes hard to this industry. There are a lot of inertia and friction points that drive inertia. And I think we'd be naive to think that we can just go around and disintermediate healthcare. That's not to say there aren't some direct-to-consumer models that are working and there aren't, aren't some new um, insurance and provider models that are innovative and, and hopefully will, will grow in size. But if we're gonna have impact at scale, our feeling right now is that we've gotta work with those that have the scale. Um, now, what we do though, is we help to sort of split those parties out to say, who are the early adopters? Who are the innovators? Who are the ones who wanna make change with us? Because for those in the, in the existing supply chain who don't want to change, I, I don't think there's enough hours in the day for us to try and change their mind. So um, it's not a one size fits all. Uh, so much of what we do is, is really partnering um, with many of the large health systems, many of the large employers, many of the large payers, but really with the idea of putting tools, technology, information in the hands of us as the end users so that we can be better stewards. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, you've been doing this for quite some time, healthcare investing, technology investing. You've seen a lot of it, you know, the evolution of this category as a whole. Uh, but I'm curious, the healthcare industry is so vast. It's, it's probably one of the most difficult industries that at least I've ever looked at. It's so many companies, just healthcare software alone. We're not even talking about pharmaceuticals, medical devices. Uh, how do you filter this down? I mean, is this, are you starting with, specific diseases? Are you starting with platform plays? Are you just dictated by what, you know, your strategic LPs are interested in? How do you even start with this process? Yeah, it, it is a big ocean, although I think a few things really help us distill it down to size. One is this sort of consumer-driven lens informed by our thesis. Um, you'd be surprised at how effective it is at ruling things out. Right, so not that these aren't big problems, but we spend no time in care coordination, no time in revenue cycle management, no time in procurement, um, no time in decision support for clinicians. I mean, there are a lot of things out there that are categories in and of themselves, which don't even show up on our radar screen because they don't, they don't align with our perspective. Um, then we have sort of two different approaches, um, but most of it is there are sort of a few, maybe four or five key markets where we have a lot of interest. Um, that include chronic care, um, aging in place, uh, vulnerable populations, which encompass Medicaid, um, social determinants of health, gaps in care, ethnic and racial minor and racial minorities. Um, you know uh, what we call health events, which are highly acute uh, health situations that we deal with for for a certain period of time, and so it doesn't look like a chronic condition, but it can be very just. Uh, it can be very uh, destabilizing, expensive, confusing, scary. So that could be a heart attack or a stroke or a, a knee replacement or, um, or something that, that is all encompassing for three, four or five months and then goes away. 
Uh, and then lastly, on the delivery side, we, we spend a fair amount of time just looking at um, new models of care and how do people reimagine what primary care looks like, what specialty care looks like, how are we going to access it, how are we going to pay for it, and what are some of the, some of the innovations around that. And I think I'm not sure if I mentioned one of the last places we spend time on is, is aging at home and redefining what it means to be an aging American and how do we think about solutions that help people live longer, healthier, better qualities of life um, and not ones where we are institutionalizing people, extending life at any cost, um, regardless of quality. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously with our aging population, that's an important sector. So those are big swim lanes. Um, when we really want to boil down this, this thesis and try and operationalize it, we use something called that was created by one of my former partners called consumer hassle mapping, which is a process of laying out all the different pain points that we as consumers face in the market. And it could be around access, it could be around affordability, it could be around tra information transparency, it could be around health literacy, um, it could be around non-clinical things, meaning social services, transportation, you know, food and nutrition, shelter, um, you name it. Uh, and then we assign a scoring model that measures impact, potential impact on cost, quality, and outcomes. And we use that to help us identify, A, what are the most pressing problems? But not only what are the most pressing problems, but are these problems that somebody cares enough to pay to solve, right? So there are plenty of problems in healthcare, as you know. The question is, which are acute enough that somebody wants to pay to solve them? And so by using this, this model, and rank ordering markets based on the size of the pain points and the potential interest in, in finding solutions that really helps us narrow down the list. So those are a few different metrics and, and approaches we use that, believe it or not, we see a ton of deal flow, a few thousand deals a year, um, but uh, you know, our lens and our approach does, us, does, does a pretty good job at weeding out a lot of the, the wheat from the chaff. Well, you know, I think it's, if probably perfected this model, given that you've been, you've been doing venture investments in healthcare for as long as you guys have been. So, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's unique that you've, you've aligned yourself with the investment thesis that you have today. Now, kind of building off of that, one of the things that it seems like looking at your portfolio is you really focus on health management, or at least what we categorize as health management. Anything that just helps an individual, whether it's general care, like any type of chronic issues or more specific um, type of issues. Uh, why is it that you tend to focus more on health management? You probably already answered this, but it might be just um, repeating yourself, but uh, it, it you definitely know, really driven. amplifies that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's driven by our consumer lens. I mean, look, when we think about when we think about changing behavior and aligning incentives and creating long-term systemic change, um, we've got to do it around things where we as consumers can actually um, be active participants, right? I mean, we think about empowerment, not engagement. And I know those words are used synonymously. We don't believe they're synonymous. Um, engagement is the idea of somebody else trying to get you to do what they want you to do, right? Simple example, help me understand why my doctor texting me six times a day telling me to check my blood sugar makes me want to go check my blood sugar. All it's actually doing is reminding me I have a chronic disease and probably angering me at the same time. So the goal really is to try and create situations that makes healthcare more transparent so that we can live our lives. Um, so. But our, our health management lens, I think, is just tied to what can we do as consumers to make better choices and, uh, and uh, to get actionable data and information that inform those choices. And so, you know, there are plenty of other areas where we can have impact in the marketplace, but those don't necessarily fall in the category of consumer empowerment. Um, you know, now, that being said, you know, if you start looking horizontally across the health market, there are plenty of opportunities for us to do better as consumers. You know, no matter what your condition is, whether you're young or old, chronic, polychronic, um, you know, frail, young and healthy, where you think you're invincible. You know, I mean, there, there are plenty of activities. And look, if we always did what we were supposed to do, nobody would drink, nobody would smoke, everybody would exercise six days a week, nobody would eat fast food. I mean, like, but we don't. We don't do what we're supposed to do, you know, most of the time. 
It's, 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 it's interesting that you guys have this perspective on empowerment that kind of leads a lot of your decision-making and within the space and category. Well, you know, uh, as an early stage investor, cause you are series A focused, which is relatively early stage. I'm, I'm, you know, for a category in an industry that has a vast quantities of startups and also the complexity of working in this industry, when you look at companies as an early stage investor, I mean, are you looking for more moonshots or are you something, are you along the lines of what's practical, what actually can be used in today's healthcare ecosystem um, with the risk level that you're taking? It, it's a good question. Um, so I think, I think the backdrop first that I, I, I should discuss is, you know, um, given our heavy operating DNA, um, we're very much a quality over quantity firm. And so we only write about three or four new checks a year. Uh, and so we over index both on time and capital and resources around our portfolio companies and spend a, a seriously disproportionate amount of time with each company, far more than perhaps um, our peers. Uh, but I think this is our, our take on how you drive impact at scale. So. I don't think we're trying to take moonshots, but I do think we're trying to avoid incrementalism, right? And which is one of the things that plagues healthcare is like very, very little small pieces of change. Like we are trying to have um, uh, solutions that really move the needle, which is very hard to do. Um, but one of our portfolio companies, Livongo Health, which we actually started in our office in 2013, I think is a good example right now. They're about to complete a merger with Teladoc at $18.5 billion seven years later. But even before that happened, you know, we were working with half of the Fortune 500. We were impacting hundreds of thousands of lives, helping people with chronic conditions take better care of themselves, stay out of the doctor's office, stay out of the emergency room. And so, um, so was that a moonshot? I don't think so. We just looked at the fact that there are hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on chronic conditions and we can, we can help people live healthier lives. Um, you know, from our perspective, the way we sort of think about risk is, um, one is, is can we leverage our collective expertise, domain knowledge and network to accelerate the growth of a company? Um, and if we do that, do we get rewarded for doing it? Uh, and so some of that comes down to, you know, ownership positions, board board roles. Uh, we lead or co-lead everything we do, um, and we're incredibly hands-on investors. And so, um, I think sometimes we're betting our, on ourselves just as much as we're betting on entrepreneurs. Interesting. Well, and I, we'll touch on this a little bit later about some of the things that uh, would make uh, I think you guys unique, and and especially with portfolio development, but. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to shift gears and talk specifically about your portfolio itself. And before we get into some examples, uh, you know, as a healthcare investor, especially with the focus that you have, do you find it sometimes it might be limiting if you make a bet on a specific health management company or a, a company that, you know, is maybe for a specific disease or generally for a, a variety of chronic conditions? You think it might limit yourself from touching any other company within this space and now health management is off limits? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's interesting. We, one of our, one of our core tenets of our thesis is to be very um, data driven and research driven. And so we spend a lot of time doing very deep dives on specific market segments. Um, specifically to address, in, in some cases, that question you're asking, which is, you know, for example, we, we did a, a pretty deep dive on, on substance abuse disorders and both alcoholism, opioids, and other types of narcotics. And we probably identified 40 or 50 companies. We probably met with half of them at least. Um, huge problem, lots of dollars, horrible current experience, 90% um, uh, relapse rate, like just terrible numbers. So. There's a there there, but you know, we haven't made a bet. We're still struggling to figure out how to play in that market. Should we play in that market? Nobody's got real market share. I mean, indicative of this is, is I've talked to a couple of payers who are implementing multiple solutions in that, in that sector at the same time, because they don't know what's gonna work. 
And so sometimes, you know, you get that, you have to hedge your bets. You don't really know what's going to work. Um, you know, I think our hedge against betting on one particular company is thinking about things from a, a more whole patient perspective and, um, and less a point solution perspective. And so when we look at things, you know, we recognize that consumers aren't going to log into 10 different things to get the different types of healthcare needs they have taken care of. So how do we think about aggregating common conditions, comorbid conditions um, to create a more unified consumer experience and um, making sure we're using that lens as we think about particular co specific companies and do they slot together with other companies that are in our portfolio or other companies we know in the marketplace um, and trying to take a little broader view. I think a lot of the sort of the first generation digital health companies were all focused on a single point solution. Um, and earlier on, early on that feels simple or simpler to tackle, but over time it confuses and complicates the consumer experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are certain times where we make a bet in a sector and we look back and feel like maybe we didn't make the right one. Um, and so sometimes we'll just say, look, we're gonna ride the horse we have. Sometimes we look at it and say, look, let's take the one we have and let's take the one we're looking at, let's put them together and create something that has more scale. You know, we, we tend to be pretty entrepreneurial, pretty creative in those situations. And I think right now, almost everything in our market is subscale. And so there are lots of opportunities to think about how you create partnerships, both formal and, and informal, to create some scale that doesn't exist. Interesting. Well, I, you know, um, I wanted to highlight a couple of the companies that uh, I'd love to go through your entire portfolio, but we don't have enough time. But I, let's maybe talk about some of the companies that you're bored of. Uh, Fantastic portfolio, by the way. You have Clarify Medical, you have HomeThrive, you have CareDocs, you have NOCD. And, uh, you know, I'm curious if there's any one of these companies that you want to highlight and, you know, maybe talk about what they do, but why you made that particular investment. Yeah, maybe, uh, you know, in, in the few you just mentioned all sort of line up with the five or six swim lanes that, that I mentioned earlier. Certainly, uh, NOCD, which focuses on anxiety disorders initially. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, and then ultimately um, adjacencies like PTSD and, uh, and eating disorders. You know, there we looked at dozens and dozens of behavioral health companies. And what we found was that behavioral health in general is incredibly heterogeneous. And so this idea of the one size fits all for all behavioral health is, is, uh, is very challenging because you might treat somebody with anxiety disorder very differently from somebody who has major depressive disorder, which might be very different from somebody who has substance abuse or somebody who has a severe mental illness like bipolar disorder. Um, so e even though there's the, the overarching behavioral health moniker, there are a lot of, lot of nuance to the different conditions there. And we looked at that and said, look, you know, we have um, a very acute patient population that struggles to access resources this was way pre-COVID, but not surprisingly, a pandemic and, and anxiety disorders don't go very well hand in hand. And so there's been a huge increase in demand um, and the ability to leverage a combination of, of digital tools and virtual therapy has been a really powerful way to help people who struggle with access to affordable care, especially for things which require specialists. I think there are fewer than a couple thousand people in the country who know how to deal with some of these specific anxiety disorders. And so not only are we connecting the dots between the patients and the providers, and, but we're also putting together programs that allow us to increase the number of providers that are skilled at treating these conditions. Um, Clarify Medical is another company which is one of our newer investments, um, but focused on treating chronic skin conditions, initially psoriasis, eczema, and vitiligo. And again, here, this idea of creating a connected, uh, a connected solution that can help people in, in a virtual care world treat their conditions with convenient, low-cost, effective treatments um, has been really powerful and, you know, aligns with this idea of, you know, better, faster, cheaper, more convenient. And one of the things we've learned over the time is the number one motivator for consumers in buying healthcare is convenience. Cost is somewhere below that, and believe it or not, quality is very low because people don't really understand how to buy healthcare based on quality because there are no real objective standards. 
there's substitutes for it. So people equate brand with quality, but that's a pretty blunt object. Um, and then, uh, and lastly, Home Thrive, which you mentioned, you know, lines up with our aging and home, you know, uh, investment sim lane. And so very focused there on helping not just seniors, but their unpaid caregivers with care coordination around uh, non-clinical needs. So how do you handle the things that your aging parent needs um, when they're living at home or living with some, some home health care um, to access all the things they need to get through their day? Ideally, with the improve their quality of life, make sure they stay adherent to their treatment protocols, make sure they don't end up lonely and isolated, um, and provide resources for those of us who were never really trained to be caregivers. Um, so those three have all really seen a lot of uptake over the last six months as people have really struggled to address, you know, the, you know, the, the growing need and, and the limits on access and affordability. Interesting. Uh, all phenomenal companies. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, especially kind of seeing and looking at your investment portfolio, how do you know what is the right tool to manage a specific condition or to manage a specific issue that the patient might have? And by tool, I mean, you know, is it telemedicine? Are we talking mobile application? Are we talking devices? How do you know where to start? And what is the most practical? And this is a broad question because there's a lot of health is. issues that it varies, but yeah. Yeah, it is. I would say one way at a sort of a macro level we address this is really around um, our investment stage. So we're always looking for companies that are um, post-commercialization and demonstrate two things, not just initial product market fit, which means that they're addressing a need, but also con what we call contract market fit. Um, which a colleague of mine, I love the term, a colleague of mine coined it, but really the idea that you can demonstrate that you've been able to tr translate your product or service into a commercial contract that has real value. Um, because that's probably the best proxy uh, of future success. And so that gives us a bit of a window into whether or not the modalities that are being used by a given company are working. Um, if we're starting from scratch, you know, there's, there's no magic, there's no magic bucket. We certainly learned different types of, uh, of tools and solutions to get consumers, um, you know, to empower them to be more involved in their health. And so we've learned through having done this for the last 10 years in digital health, what works and what doesn't, but it's usually no one thing. There's usually a combination of different modes of communication. Some people want, phone calls still, some people are comfortable with email. Increasingly, people just want to communicate, communicate via text. I mean, that's becoming the universal lingua franca right now is that that's sort of the lowest common denominator that almost all populations want to, want to use. Um, and then you have, as you mentioned, there are all kinds of other components, which is your phone, a wearable, remote patient monitoring tools at home. Um, and there are different concerns with each of those. Some is usability, some is cost, some is privacy. So, you know, it's complicated. I mean, you know, and, and we're all figuring this out right now. You know, I don't think there's, uh, you know, it's, it's still a little bit of the Wild West on some of these things. I, I can say that in general, um, we much prefer things that do passive data gathering and active. Things that require people to take specific actions proactively is hard. And so the idea that your phone or your, your watch or whatever is gathering data in the background or your wireless um, connected glucometer is taking readings regularly or you have a, a BP uh, uh, solution that's taking readings at different intervals. Anything that doesn't require us as consumers to disrupt our daily living are inherently better um, sources of data um, and more reliable sources of data. Interesting. Well, I, I, um, you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier about how a lot of uh, conditions are heterogeneous and you have to take a very specific approach. And your portfolio kind of does a mix of both. You have both, you know, products that seem to cater to a specific category of care and then some that are more generalized. And it, it seems like more of a platform play. Uh, what, you know, for you in health management, what is the route that you think is the best route? Should we be more specific and we should be catering directly to specific points of care? Or are you more of a believer of that there's platform solutions that can help uh, uh, for a variety of different use cases? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, 
it's hard to believe that there will be a, unifold, a unified platform in the near future that serves as the aggregation point for our touch points to the system. Um, that's not to say there aren't players out there hoping that they will be the aggregation point. Um, some of those may be healthcare players, some of those may be the non-healthcare technology players, you know, the Apples, Googles and, of the world. Um, I think what we see is there are natural groupings around specific conditions. And so um, the goal is to try and think as holistically as we can around those groupings of conditions. So if you have diabetes, you're likely to have um, hypertension or hyperlipidemia or obesity or, um, or behavioral health issues. And so there are a lot of conditions that all happen um, in concert. And so we need to be thinking about what that group of conditions are and treat that whole patient for those conditions. Um, but to think that we're gonna be able to layer in everything into one common platform, I think is still a stretch. Same thing, for instance, behavioral health, people are still today are looking at substance abuse, for example, as a very discrete separate thing, separate from all the other behavioral health solutions. Will it ultimately integrate with something that handles behavioral health, things like anxiety and depression? Maybe. I mean, certainly you could argue in substance abuse that people either end up on substance, have substance abuse because of depression or they end up depressed because they have a substance abuse problem. So there's, there's always some interplay between them. Um, but I think it's evolving. I really do. Uh, um, there's no one size fits all. Um, what we try to do is, is think about it from the consumer's perspective. And so our goal is to create magnetic consumer experiences that address consumer needs. And the more of those needs we can address in a unified platform, the better. Um, but it's a work in process for sure. Um, we started maybe in the beginning a few years ago with one, then we had two, then we had three. And maybe over time we'll get most of them. Um, but given how heterogeneous people are, it's hard to see how we'll, you know, how we won't end up with um, multiple, multiple platforms. And then we have the whole data interoperability issue, which is sort of a big horizontal issue across the whole industry is sort of unlocking the data silos that allow us to treat these conditions in a unified way, right? I mean, today, the, many of those barriers are still pretty formidable and they're standard on the technology side of fire and HL7 and some other things that are trying to connect the, the dots, but you know, not everybody in the industry even wants to share their data. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some pretty well entrenched systemic problems that, that need to be addressed to create sort of the, the unified customer experience. But I think it's like akin to shopping, right? Like there's sometimes you'll be able to go to the mall and there'll be a whole bunch of different things you'll be able to find what you want. But if you need something really specialized, you have to go to the title store to get the specific bathroom tile you want. And so maybe it turns out to be a little bit of both. Interesting. Interesting perspective. Now I, 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 now I kind of wanted to shift gears over to like the general broader healthcare market questions. Uh, it seems like the sentiment, especially within healthcare software, is that it's really difficult uh, to grow or scale. Sales cycles are really long, providers are impossible to work with. I know you a little bit more consumer centric and I have more questions about it, but uh, do you have any thoughts on, and does this change your approach when working with companies and I have tend to struggle with much longer sales cycle than you would think of other yeah. you know, enterprise software categories? Yeah, healthcare is really hard, <laughs> just is. Um, and I would say a couple of things, one is, I think this is where our, uh, both our domain knowledge and our, our network has been really valuable. One is having been in the market for a long time, we have a pretty good sense for what types of solutions will succeed and when and why. Um, and then we have really good connections in at the C-suite level of many of the big players that help us accelerate path to commercialization for our companies. Um, for example, uh, things rarely fail, fail for technology reasons. More, far more likely to fail because of misaligned incentives, um, fiefdoms, uh, you know, integration within existing clinical decision support processes. You know, it, it, it's, uh, if it was so easy that we could throw technology at it, we would have done it years ago, right? Um, from, a, from a fund and investment perspective, you know, 
we tend to spend more of our time on risk-bearing entities than non-risk-bearing entities as customers. And so we're much more interested in companies that are selling to self-funded insurers, um, risk-bearing providers, payers, pharma, than we are selling to health systems. Health systems, we have relatively little exposure to companies that sell to health systems. They're, you're right, they're very hard to sell to. Um, uh, particularly academic medical centers are really hard to sell to. Um, across the industry, they're lucky if they do three or 4% net margin. And so it's a thin economic model. Um, and so there's not a, a ton of extra cash sitting around on the balance sheet. And as we've seen this year, they've been decimated by the delay of elective procedures, um, which is really the bread and butter. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I have any great words of wisdom for people to sell to health systems. Um, I, I give them kudos for those that have had success there, but uh, I, we try to insulate ourselves from some of that risk because that's, that's really the most challenging part of the ecosystem for us. You know, plenty of more, plenty more capital on the balance sheets of the payers and the pharma companies and the employers and the large self-funded employers have risk and are very motivated to make changes. Um, so that's where we spent our time. Interesting. And I, I kind of want to build off of that, that last point that you made, which is, you know, we talked about how a lot of your portfolio tends to revolve around health management solutions. And I'm curious, especially for the health management, and even if you overlap it with telemedicine solutions, it seems like, well, especially telemedicine, you know, that fee-based services uh, are challenging to scale. And I'm, I'm just curious, what are the, the business models that you see that are practical or work for, you know, the health management category? Who's the one who's going to be paying for these things? And uh, what, what actually works? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, we still live largely in a fee-for-service world. Um, and the transition to value-based care has been slow and, uh, and uh, episodic at best. And uh, I suspect that will continue to be a slow evolution, um, unfortunately. So the guidance we've always given to our companies uh, is that you need to make sure you have an economic model that works both in a fee-for-service world and in a value-based care model. Um, you know, we are encouraging in certain select situations for our companies to take risk where it's possible and create some shared savings models so that there is upside potential based on value creation, whether it be improved outcomes, reduced costs, um, uh, things that can be objectively measured. And there's some growing appetite for that. Um, you have to really, really understand your business and your unit economics to take risk. Um, and so it's, uh, it's something people like to throw around and say, oh yeah, we're going to take risk and go share savings. I'm like, it could be a three, four, five year down the road kind of a kind of an activity. And, and uh, it's, uh, you know, you could end up upside down if you don't really understand how your business works. Um, but uh, I think it will evolve over time around some of these value-based models. You know, um, we've seen a lot of PM, PM models initially in the employer space more and more of those population-based models seem to be migrating towards activation-based models. So instead of paying for an entire universe at a certain, you know, per member per month, you're gonna pay for those people that actually use the system. Um, and maybe you'll get some upside from the outcomes of those, of, of those patients. Um, so that's how we th see, see things evolving over time. But I, I would say I'm fairly, um, right now pessimistic on consumers wanting to bear any more burden than they already are, are bearing. There are, we've seen limited pockets where, aside from like the G to C world, like the hymns of the world, the Romans of the world, we've seen other small pockets where people seem to be willing to come out of pocket, fertility, sometimes pain, rare disease. Um, you know, so there are pockets where people are highly motivated and are willing to come out of pocket, but Outside of that, I think people feel like they're paying a lot for healthcare right now, and it's expensive. Um, and um, and it doesn't feel like, even though the common sense would say a little bit of extra money here or there might actually get dramatically improved health, it's pretty hard to get people to do that. Um, 
you know, after they've been seeing increasing premiums, higher deductibles, higher coinsurance, a shift towards high deductible plans where they're gonna come out of pocket a lot. Yeah, uh, no, it, it definitely, it, um, it's challenging, especially having to navigate between, you know, both the payer provider and uh, the, the patient itself and figuring out the, the responsibility on each side. Uh, you know, obviously uh, there's the big elephant in the room, which is the pandemic. And I'm curious, you know, you've been in this industry for a while and I'm, how do you think, you, you've kind of mentioned it earlier, you, your thesis, you know, even before the pandemic is kind of playing itself out the way that you'd expect it, but how's the pandemic change the outlook on healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna say anything you probably haven't heard elsewhere. I suspect, look, I, I think generally speaking, we've seen a pretty significant acceleration um, that would not have happened in the absence of a pandemic. Um, the relaxations of uh, re relaxation of regulatory constraints, uh, improvements in reimbursement, um, you know, uh, reductions in regulations. So, you know, being able to do a telehealth visit over FaceTime or, you know, I mean, things that we would have gotten arrested for six months ago, now suddenly are fair game for our portfolio companies. Um, I think the net effect of that is lowering um, barrier to access for people. I also think it's been a boon to just, you know, nothing like forcing everybody to go get virtual care overnight to drive adoption, right? So if you look at pre-pandemic telehealth utilization, about five to eight percent of the population had tried it before. Um, now that number, depending on what you look at, anywhere between 60 and 70 percent. Um, but I think it'll snap back and we'll see it in the 20 to 30 percent, but we'll still be five, six-fold above where we were going to be organically um, pre-pandemic. So there are definitely some tailwinds um, we've seen in our portfolio. And well, maybe the tailwinds and the pace of those tailwinds will, will ebb a bit. Um, I, do, I do believe that to some extent the genie is out of the bottle. Um, and we're going to see some increased momentum on these digital health and innovative models. Um, I expect, though, that there'll be some snapback. Right, they'll still, some of these regulations will get reenacted. Um, some of the reimbursement will probably get pulled back a bit, or at least different types of reimbursement models will, will replace the sort of parity online, offline ones, you know, everything's covered. Um, but I, I think we're gonna look back and feel like this was a catalyzing moment, I do. Um, and, you know, if, if I'm trying to find a silver lining, you know, this is it, I'm not overly, you know, blindly optimistic, but I do feel like we're gonna look back and feel like this this moved the ball ahead five years, you know, even once we get past all of this. Um, and I think if anything, it's also made people keenly aware that they better be thinking about the consumer or they're gonna be left out, right? Like the amount of activity I saw, particularly in the first 60 days of trying to figure out how to create solutions that we as the end user could use, it was massive. It was massive, painful, but massive. Um, you know, now I also still recognize, you know, recognize that there are some generational shifts that are gonna have to take place, right? Senior citizens who've had relationships for 20, 30 years with their drugs, they're probably gonna go back to see their doctors, right? They may not wanna use telehealth. Um, so, I mean, I think there are just some population realities that will still be faced, but I, I've been net bullish on the on the silver lining of COVID, at least from a digital health perspective. I mean, I think it's tragic to do it on the back of a couple hundred thousand lives. It's even more tragic with, to see how disproportionately the the, the pandemic has impacted um, disadvantaged populations. Um, I, I feel like that's, that's morally reprehensible. And so when we think about addressing disparities in care, it makes me more motivated to look at solutions that, that help level that playing field. You know, I mean, certainly, in the, unit, in, the, in the country in general, we've seen no, never seen a bigger disparity between the haves and have-nots, but on the health trend, it's been even worse. It's been even worse. It's, it's, it's really interesting, uh, the, uh, especially the healthcare industry itself going through this, this, um, this event and seeing both kind of the silver lining, but also highlighting all the bottlenecks and the issues that existed. And so, like I said, uh, you mentioned it perfectly. I think it's 
I think uh, it's it in in some sense it hopefully will move the the industry forward in a in a much better way in addressing a lot of those problems. I hope so. I, you know, I remain optimistic. You know, and I think you know we can't not do what we do and be optimistic that that we can have impact and create change. And so, um, you know, we'll just continue to seek out both those incumbents and those new innovators who want to join the journey and be part of the solution. Um, well, you know, I, with that, I wanted to transition because I know we got a little bit of time left, uh, which I really wanted to highlight the unique aspects of Seven Wire Ventures. I mean, you guys have a, a really a handful of really cool programs. First off, you, you, you kind of already mentioned this earlier. You're incredibly active with your portfolio development. You mentioned this before. You only do what four, about four deals a year, and this is introductions. You're doing recruitments. You're doing, you know, go-to-market strategy. You're doing. You're participating even in their sales calls. Uh, and I'm curious, is you know, why did you know, just maybe you want to highlight this approach and why you're being so aggressive with your portfolio development? Um, I think a couple of reasons. I think one is. Um, it's in our DNA. We, we were operators before we were investors. And so um, we know how to do this and, and it's hard. And, and I think, you know, look, sometimes we're really fortunate. We get to work with serial entrepreneurs and they've been to the rodeo before and they know how to play the game. And, and those, uh, those are, or perhaps quick studies and easier to, you know, have an easier time scaling their businesses. And there are other times where we have younger entrepreneurs where, you know, part of our, part of our role as an investor is also as mentor and guide um, and partner. Um, and so I think it's just part of our sort of our, uh, our makeup and how we want to approach things. I also think it's the way we perceive that we can create value, right? Like at the end of the day, we're trying to build businesses and, um, and have impact, and this helps us do it at scale. And so um, I, I, I don't think that's ever going to change. Um, it's just that just our approach to the marketplace. Um, and look, I mean, sometimes it looks really pretty and it's really fun to do the high level strategy work, but sometimes you got to sit down and build a fundraising deck. And we've seen a thousand of them, and entrepreneurs have seen two. And so, you know, even if something that tactical, we can leverage some of our internal resources to help on that. We'll do it. We'll do it. You know, we'll, um, you know, there's no ego or hubris here. We want to do whatever we can do to help drive businesses forward. Um, now, and we recognize it's hard to do that across a portfolio of 50 companies. And so, you know, that, that's why I say this sort of quality over quantity is that we know that to do this at the level and quality we want to do, it's got to be, you know, highly selective. Interesting. Well, I also wanted to highlight, you guys have a, uh, what you call like a, a coalition of, it seems like both a combination of your strategic investors, but a lot of healthcare stakeholders. Uh, and, and it's, uh, can you comment a little bit more on this, this coalition that you guys built, what it is and what, it, what you do and why is it valuable? Yeah. Sure, so, so with, uh, with our last fund, we built this, what we call the Consumer Connected Consumer Health Coalition, which is a group of eight core limited partners in our fund, um, but also sort of thought leaders and innovators in the, in the industry. And so four payers and four providers. Um, and we handpicked them. We actually started targeting just four. We ended up with eight. And we really handpicked them for one, a combination of their appetite for innovation, their understanding of the consumer's role in innovation, um, and the organizational commitment to it but also because we got a diversity of opinions um, geographically, um, you know, socioeconomically, um, across business lines. So Medicare, Medicaid, MA, um, commercial, small business, employer, national accounts. Um, so the goal really was to try and aggregate enough of a diverse point of view across the country so that we could use that to inform our investment thesis, our diligence efforts. Um, they could be potential partners for our portfolio companies. And fortunately, this group touches about 24 million lives. And so, you know, it's a pretty good, um, it's a good, a pretty good representative sample of, of the country. And so we've got some pretty good 
um, viewpoints that we've been able to leverage through that, that partnership. And then the last piece of it is, is I, I sort of alluded to earlier with some of our research is there's a fairly big piece of felt leadership to what we do. And so we're always publishing and co collaborating with this uh, group of strategic investors uh, around thought leadership as it pertains to sort of consumer driven health um, and how we leverage digital health and innovation just to solve some of these problems. And so they've been, they've been important part, thought partners for us in terms of understanding, you know, what the pressing problems are, how do we analyze it? Um, you know, where do those align among the group and how can we collectively address solutions that benefit all of us? Um, so that's been a really valuable asset for, for both our fund and for, for our portfolio companies who've been able to leverage that access for commercial agreements, for partnerships, for, I mean, even just sounding boards to say, you know, I'm hearing this from the marketplace. Am I thinking, am I thinking about this correctly or how are the incentives aligned and, and how do I, how should I think about pricing? or go-to-market strategy, or what are, the, what are the barriers or the friction points I'm gonna run into um, before we actually go ahead and do things. So, uh, so it, it's an important component of what we do. Wow, it's, it's incredible, it's awesome. I mean, I don't think there's, there's very few uh, venture funds that have anything like it. And I think this is one of the big reasons also why we wanted to highlight you is just not only the, your expertise in healthcare, uh, your approach, your thesis on top of that, your portfolio is amazing. And on, of all of it, you wrap it in and you have an incredible output that you can provide for your portfolio companies and support. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. Well, with that, Robert, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This was fantastic. Before I do uh, close out, do you have any other thoughts or announcements or things you want to add or recap of Seven Wire Ventures? No, I would just say, you know, we're always happy to talk to like-minded people who want to solve problems in healthcare and, uh, you know, welcome the outreach from both potential co-investors and entrepreneurs alike. And, you know, part of our job is to, you know, to talk to as many people as we can, uh, collect as many innovative ideas as we can and look for partners who want to, who want to join the mission. Uh, you know, one of the things we didn't talk too much about before, but when we don't find what we like in the industry, we start it ourselves. And so, you know, about 20% of what we do, we do it from scratch. And so, uh, you know, when we're looking for partners to do it with, um, there are white spaces and there are um, opportunities to really create a value from, uh, from, from thin air. And so we're not afraid to do that under the right circumstances. So whether you have an existing business or maybe even an idea for a business and are looking for a partner you know we're, we're always willing to have uh, have those dialogues and that's that's your hatch program right that's our hatch program. yeah yeah really interesting well with that robert thanks again for doing this and again for the audience for perspective why we had this interview i mean uh, you've heard of the, the, the background and the reasons why the reasons why seven wire ventures is one of the top healthcare investors is one you have decades of experience investing in this category you have basically perfected a model of approach investment ecosystem or healthcare ecosystem. You've filtered it out. You have an investment thesis that probably caters to them, probably one of the most important aspects of healthcare, revolving around the patient, empowering them, giving them control. And on top of that, you've built out a, a, a method and a model to support your portfolio being not only extremely selective, but on top of that being overly supportive, not, I wouldn't say overly supportive, but incredibly supportive of your portfolio and what you do. And then uh, of all of this, you have a coalition of uh, uh, payers and providers that have what, almost 24 million patients that uh, they touch on a daily basis that uh, you have access to, not only for insight, for due diligence, for you know, portfolio development. Incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. So now, uh, now the audience truly understands why Seven Wire Ventures is one of the best healthcare venture investors globally. So this was this was a fantastic interview, Robert. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it. Always thrilled to talk about uh, what we do with other like-minded people, and uh, I do appreciate your time. Awesome.